Welcome all to the uh, podcast um, of the uh, Journal of Nuclear Cardiology, uh, November-December 2019 issue. I am Pradeep Bamvani from the Department of Radiology and Division of Molecular Imaging uh, from the University of Alabama at Birmingham, and I'm joined uh, with my colleague, uh, hi, I'm Fadi Haig. I'm from the uh, Division of Cardiovascular Disease at, at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and the Birmingham VA Medical Center. Uh, as the readership of the journal uh, may be available, uh, might be aware that uh, we have been uh, providing a write-up of uh, um, select manuscripts um, and key contents from every issue of the journal into a uh, write-up called as a quick glance at selected topics uh, in in the issue. We are following that up with an uh, a podcast uh, for the audience that may prefer to go through the quick glance in an audio format. Um, and these are available through various different um, um applications like iTunes, Spotify, and most podcast manager applications. Um, so um, I'm going to review um, a manuscript uh, from the November and December issue um, of uh, 2019 of the journal. And um, this manuscript uh, is in reference to uh, rubidium-82 PET myocardial perfusion imaging as uh, the audience may be aware that uh, the bane of uh, myocardial perfusion imaging ha- is uh, artifacts. You know, they could be um, external artifacts or they could be internal artifacts. Uh, this particular manuscript looks at uh, subdiaphragmatic activity-related imaging artifacts um, that are seen on um, rubidium-82 PET myocardial perfusion imaging. Now, Rasmussen and uh, his colleagues from uh, the University of Copenhagen in Denmark uh, study the association between various different clinical parameters um, and uh, myocardial perfusion imaging interference from subdiaphragmatic activity, including any potential correlation between uh, the uh, severity of the interference and the stomach volume in about 200 patients, which is a fair-sized group. And they find, interestingly, that the interference with the uh, LV myocardial rubidium-82 activity was uh, mainly caused by excessive radioactivity in the stomach. Interestingly, weight and body mass index were inversely correlated with uh, the subdiaphragmatic activity interference and BMI was the strongest predictor uh, of uh, this artifactual activity and interference. Uh, Patients with larger stomach volumes uh, also tended to have a high degree of interference from um, the subdiaphragmatic activity. Uh, The authors suggest that uh, there may be a potential benefit from longer fasting times. Uh, They had the patients fast for up to two hours uh, for their study, but their suggestion was that longer fasting times prior to myocardial perfusion imaging, especially in smaller patients, would potentially help in decreasing the um, 
the intensity and the extent of subdiaphragmatic uh, activity. I was kind of surprised. I would have thought that maybe obese patients would have would have more subdiaphragmatic activity, but um, their data in 200 patients suggests that the higher activity is actually seen in smaller patients rather than the bigger ones. That is that is very interesting. Especially, it's important to follow this up with you know with different fasting times to see if that would help. Um, because that that you know, decreasing artifact, like you said, is the is the ultimate aim of uh, of imaging. Absolutely, absolutely, yes. Um... Great. The next, oh. uh, uh, yes, go ahead, Pradeep. Uh, I was um, going to suggest that um, you know one other thing that helps with uh, improving artifacts is if the myocardial perfusion is done with uh, a CT attenuation correction. You know, um, most PET scanners, I would say almost uh, all PET scanners available presently uh, come with, um, you know, cross-sectional imaging, most commonly with CT. And now um, with PET-MR, you can even get uh, MR scanners uh, combined with PET. So I think that's another way to help cut down um, the uh, incidence um, of the artifacts that are so commonly seen, uh, much more with SPECT imaging than with PET. But uh, I think uh, incorporating CT for attenuation correction is also a way to go. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. The second article that we're going to review addresses uh, an important aspect of, of imaging, mainly the false negative uh, myocardial perfusion imaging. And these are uh, the, specifically the ones thought to be related to inadjugate pharmacological stress. And this article looks at splenic response, that is the decreased flow to the spleen during stress compared to rest, which is a physiologic response to adenosine or dipyridamol infusion and likely in the, indicates the adequacy of chemical stress during promedium pet. Uh, myocardial perfusion imaging. The idea is that a failure of this response may be an indicator of insufficient pharmacological stress, and thus a marker of false negative uh, stress MPI. So Bami et al. from the University of Ottawa investigate the incremental prognostic impact of splenic response ratio in 653 patients with normal rubidium uh, dipyridamol rest stress MPI uh, results. They look at uh, they calculate the splenic response ratio by placing a spherical volume of interest in the spleen and liver, and then using the formula of spleen stress to liver stress over spleen rest to liver rest. Um, and in, in patients with, an, uh, with a ratio of less than 0.71 were, were classified as splenic responders, and this, uh, uh, and this ratio was um, was calculated from uh, from uh, uh, a normal cohort of 50 patients. So there were significantly higher uh, MACE events in splenic non-responders versus the splenic responders in both the normal uh, sum stress score um, and in the normal sum different score groups. And the differences were substantial. So in the normal sum stress score, uh, the events were 7.8% versus 2.9%. And in the some different score groups, it was 7.4% versus 2.2%, and both were statistically significant. On multivariate analysis, in patients with normal uh, SDS, 
Mispenic response was a significant independent predictor of MACE with a hazard ratio approaching three. Um, and uh, interestingly, in 17% of patients that had a full hemodynamic response were splenic non-responders, which suggests that the splenic switch-off may provide incremental information to aid the interpretation of a negative dipyridamol PET-MPI. So to, to conclude, the splenic response ratio uh, represents a simple and reproducible marker of adequate pharmacological stress tuning rubidium uh, PET-MPI, and in addition to abnormal myocardial flow reserve, may be used to identify patients at risk of false negative uh, results and increased, uh, and increased mates. It is important to mention that this uh, splenic response is, is attributed to the effect of adenosine on the A1 and the A2B receptors, and therefore bregadenosin, which is the uh, acts on A2A receptor, is not expected to exhibit this splenic response. And so it cannot be used with regadenosin, only with adenosin and dipyridamol. And further, the hemodynamic response uh, should not be used as a marker of adequate stress, especially since hemodynamic changes during vasodilator stress have been shown in, uh, to be independent prognostic marker and influenced by autonomic innervation uh, in a manner independent of myocardial blood flow. This has been shown in multiple, multiple studies, including from our group. Uh, so th that should not be used as a marker of adequate response, as again illustrated in, in, this, uh, in this nice article. Yeah, the, the, the practical aspect uh, of implementation is, um, is in getting this, uh, this ratio. You know, I was thinking, you know, if it were maybe a more visual thing, you know, where one could look at the raw data and see, you know, you know, where do you see the spleen better? Uh, intuitively, one should see the spleen a lot better on the resting exam assuming there is a splenic response as compared to the stress exam. Um, the other point to make is it would be good if there was a similar variable that could be assessed on SPECT exams, which are far more commonly performed. I'm not sure if there is data, if somebody's looked at splenic activity, with the technetium-based tracers. That would, that would be really helpful. If that, if, uh, I don't think that data exists. Uh, at least I haven't seen it, but it would be really helpful. Right. Yeah. Another good manuscript. Now, um, at the end of this podcast, I wanted to remind the readers that in addition to the select manuscripts that we are talking about in the podcast, there are many other entries in the journal. Uh, one that is there almost in every issue is the historical corner that looks at uh, contributions of uh, pioneers uh, in uh, in cardiac nuclear medicine we have in the in the present issue uh, the career and scientific contributions of a pioneer in um, coronary physiology research and cardiac pet imaging lance gould is um, who's a professor of medicine at the mcgovern medical school at the university of texas health science center at houston Every issue of the journal has uh, a write-up by uh, Dr. Franz Walkers from uh, Yale University, where he profiles um, at least one. Sometimes there are two profiles of uh, pioneers in uh, cardiac nuclear medicine. Uh, the, in addition to the historical corner, there is also an international corner, which in the present issue looks at the positive impacts that the IAEA, which is the 
International Atomic Energy Agency has had in the development of the practice and research in the field of nuclear cardiology in low and middle income countries, uh, specifically looking at Latin America and the Caribbean. So there's a mishmash of different um, manuscripts in the journal, uh, you know, to uh, appeal to a range of audiences um, that the audience may want to check out. Thank you very much and see you next time. Thank you.